Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Carl Fogel, author of Producing Open Source Software. Carl served on the board of the Open Source Initiative, which coined the term open source, and helped write Subversion. He's currently a partner at Open Tech Strategies, helping major organizations use open source to achieve their goals. Our focus on today's episode with Carl was about what has changed in open source since he first published his book 10 years ago. We talked about the influence of Git and GitHub and how they've changed both development workflows and our culture. We also talked about changes in the wider perception of open source, whether open source is truly one, and the challenges that still remain. So back in 2006, I started working at the Open Source Applications Foundation on the Chandler project. And um, I remember we had to kind of put together like a governance policy and like how do we you know, manage an open source project and how do we do it openly. Um, and, and basically your book kind of got slapped on everybody's desk, <laughs> the producing open wow. source software first edition. Uh, and it was like, this is how you run open source projects. <laughs> um, wow, that's, uh, that's really nice to hear. Thank you. And it was, especially at the time, like, that was a, an amazing guide. Uh, and I know from talking with, with Jacob Kaplan-Moss that like the Django project did something similar as well. And so I'm, I'm very curious like how you, you know, got to write that book and, and what kind of uh, preceded it and, and why um, I, it's produced by O'Reilly, right? Um, yes. Like why O'Reilly wanted to do something that um, it's, it's very deep and very nerdy. So. <laughs> yeah, actually, I want to I want to take a, a quick second to give a shout out to O'Reilly because um, I mean, that was never a book that was going to be a bestseller. And they sort of knew that from the beginning. And they not only decided to produce it anyway, they gave me a very good editor, Andy Oram, who, who made a lot of contributions to the book um, in terms of shaping it and giving good feedback. And they let me publish it under uh, a free license, which for a publisher, that's, that's a pretty big move. Um, and it's not something that they do with all their books. Um, so I really appreciated the, the support I got from them. Um, so the, the answer to your main questionnaire, uh, I'm afraid is pure luck. Uh, I, I really think that in, in early 2000s, 2005, 2006, um, the time was ripe for some kind of long form guide to the social and community management aspects of open source to come out. Uh, and like my book just happened to come out. If someone else had written a long form guide, then, you know, it's like, it's like in the early days of physics or something, like if you just happen to be the first person to think of calculus, you'll get all this credit when, but there were probably 10 people who thought of it. It's just that someone publishes first. So yeah, I just got really lucky with the timing. Um, and the way that, that I was motivated to write it was, uh, that O'Reilly had um, contacted me about doing a subversion book. I was coming off five or six years uh, as a founding developer in the subversion project that had been my full-time job. Um, and I'd gone from being mostly programmer uh, and sort of project technical, I don't know about technical lead, but sort of technical arbiter or technical cheerleader in some sense, to, um, to more and more community manager. I mean, I was still doing coding, but a lot of my time was spent on just organizing and coordinating the work of others and, um, you know, interjecting what I felt were the appropriate noises in certain contentious discussion threads and things like that. Um, 
so when it came time to write a subversion book, I'd already written a book. I knew folks at O'Reilly. Um, they said, would you like to be uh, one of the authors? There were a couple of other subversion developers um, that I worked with who were also interested in writing. And we'd all agreed that we would co-author it. And then as I started to write, I, I really let down my co-authors. I said, oh, hey, folks, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, I just I don't want to write another technical manual. I've already done that once. You, you know, you folks go do it. <laughs> And it's going to be great. And I, I wrote the introduction and they wrote a wonderful book that became one of O'Reilly's better sellers and is still quite popular. Um, and so I thought, well, what was it that I wanted to write if that wasn't the book? And I realized what I, the book I wanted to write was not about subversion, the software. It was about the running of the subversion project and about open source projects in general. Subversion wasn't the only one that I was involved in. So I went back to O'Reilly and I said very meekly, um, could I write this other book instead? What do you think of that? And they said, yes. So I sort of backed into it, you know, but was forced into the realization that I wanted to write this book through trying to write another book and failing. Was that a popular view back then? Like when you said that you wanted to write this non-technical, more management focused book around open source for people like, why? Um, boy, let me let me cast back uh, my memory. No, uh, but then again, the people that I talk with is a very, that's a very uh, biased sample, right? Um, most people were encouraging and they didn't, at least they, if they were mystified as to why I wanted to write this, they hit it very well and were nothing but encouraging. Uh, then it took a little bit longer to write than I thought. And, and people would ask me, how's it going? And I'd be always, I'd always give the same answer. Like, Carl, how's your book going? Never ask. Thank you. Never <laughs> ask. No one ever listened to that. They would just ask the next time, <laughs> but eventually it got done. But no, I think there was among people involved in open source, like, for example, the, the role of community manager was already a title you started to see people having. Um, you started to see a phenomenon where the, the coordinating people, the people doing most community management and projects were no longer also the most technically sharp people. Like I was said, definitely not the best program in this version project. I can think of, I could, I could think of a lot of names. I've probably even forgotten some names of people who I just think are better coders than I am who are working on that project. And that was true across a lot of open source projects. I could see that the people who were doing technical and community work together were not, they weren't the, the Linus Torvalds model, which, uh, and Linus Torvalds isn't, you know, isn't by any means a typical example. The Linux kernel in general is not a typical example of how open source projects have ever operated. It's, it's been its kind of own weird, unique thing for a long time. Um, but one thing you can say about it is that the leader of the project is also uh, one of the best programmers in the project. I mean, Linux is a very technically sharp person. But that was not the case in a lot of open source projects. And that, to me, seemed like a, a clue that, okay, something's happening here where open source is maturing to the point where different sets of skills are needed. And you've got these crossover people who are... Um, often founding members of a project and, and active in coding and other technical tasks, but their, their sort of main focus, their main energy is going to the social health and the overall community health of the project. Um, and I wasn't the only person sensing that. A lot of people seem to already understand the topic of the book before I explained it to them. For that first book, I mean, you you came up through the '90s open source scene, and and were clearly like you know doing a lot of community work on the Subversion project. Did you write it mostly just from your own experiences and memory, or did you go through a phase of of research and reaching out to other projects? 
Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, no, I researched other projects. Um, I did rely a lot on my own experiences, which were somewhat broad. I mean, I'd worked on a lot of projects by that point. Um, but I, I was worried that I would be biased, in particular towards back-end systems projects, because I was a C programmer. I, I didn't do a huge amount of uh, graphical user interface programming or um, stuff like that. Web programmers was kind of new then, but I still hadn't done a lot of it. Um, so I deliberately uh, sought out some other projects to talk to, and people were very generous with their time. And I think I listed them all in the, either in the acknowledgments or in the running text or the footnote where I, I referred to them. Um, so not all of those were projects that I worked in. They were just places where people were willing to be informants. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned that, um, you know, people were starting to come around and you were starting to see community manager as a title. Um, but I, I do feel like the book um, addressed something and, and reset uh, people's expectations about how open source projects run um, and did bring a lot of this community stuff and not everything being purely technical to the forefront. I mean, if there was one sort of presumption that projects had at the time that, that the book was meant to address, uh, is, is there one, is there one that you could kind of point at, um, or, or anything, any kind of general stories that you may have heard about, um, kind of shifts in, um, people's, what I really want to get at is, uh, people's conception of open source had been this pure meritocracy, pure technical side of things, right? Um, not a lot had been done uh, in a formal way to address, you know, the role of people um, and people management <laughs> um, and processes and barriers to entry um, un until your book, as, as far as I know. Um, well, no, that's, that's a, I, I think I get the question you're asking. Um, and it's, it's a good one. I never really thought of, thought of the book as addressing addressing a sort of as yet unacknowledged need but i guess it i guess in a way it was and the thing that the observation i had at the time in subversion and then as i started to talk to people in other projects i realized it was just as true for them as it was for subversion was that there's no such thing as a structuralist meritocracy and there's there's no such thing as a structuralist community i mean you we've all heard of the the famous essay the tyranny of structurelessness um in in which the author points out that if you if you think you have a structuralist organization, what you really have is an organization where the rules are not clear and people with certain kinds of personalities end up dominating by sometimes vicious or deceptive means. Um, and that has certainly been the case in some open source projects. Um, I don't want to name names, but uh, we, we could probably all think of some. Um, <laughs> the, uh, what I saw in Subversion was that managing a bunch of people who were not all under one management hierarchy, like they were coming from different companies. Um, some of them were, were true volunteers in the sense that there was like no, no way in which they were being paid for their time or only very indirectly. Um, but a lot of them were being paid for it and they had their own priorities. And to make that, that scene work and to have the project make identifiable progress you had to broker compromises and you had to convince people like, okay, this feature that you want is, it needs some more design work and the community has to accept it. That means it's not going to be done in time for this upcoming release, but we don't want to delay the release because this other thing that this programmer or this company wants needs to be in that release and they're depending on it. And by the way, if you get them on your side by cooperating now, you'll be much more likely to review your changes in design uh, when your stuff is ready, you know, things like that. Um, making sure that the right people meet uh, or talk at in-person events, um, occasional back-channel communications to ask someone to be a little bit less harsh toward a new developer who uh, is showing promise or is 
perhaps is representing an important organization that is going to bring more development energy to the project, but we, we need to not offend their first person who comes in who is, you know, maybe not, not leading with his best code. That sometimes happens. Um, there were all sorts of stuff that had to be done that was not necessarily visible uh, from just watching the public mailing list. So the book was basically, I realize I'm giving a long answer. You should feel free to edit this down, by the way. Um, and I'll try to be a little less verbose. Uh, this no, this point. is perfect. This but, is perfect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, um, all right, I'm glad. <laughs> I guess the thing the book was, was meant to address was you get a lot of programmers who land in open source somehow, they find themselves running projects or, or occupying positions, positions of influence, and both because no one has ever said it, uh, and because it's not visible from the public activity in the project, or not entirely visible, and because there is a, a predisposition among programmers to be less aware of social things. Um, just statistically speaking, programmers, I think, are somewhat less socially adept people than most people. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to that, but I, I think as a broad categorization that is statistically true. So for all of those reasons, I wanted there to be a document that said, hey, you know, you, you need to start thinking about this as a system. You need to start thinking about the project in the same way you think about the code base. Like, like parts need to work together and you need to you need to pay attention to how people feel and to their long-term interests, and you've got to put yourself in their shoes. And here is a rough guide to doing that. So that's, that's what I was thinking when I was writing the book. And um, I never really articulated that until you asked the question, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's more or less what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're still struggling with that today. <laughs> you know, like, we're talking in the past oh, yeah. tense because the book came out 10 years ago, but I'm, I'm still struggling to get people to recognize that today. But well, um, let me hear, let's give a, let's, let's go, let's go right to the, uh, the controversial stuff. Um, I mean, the Linux project is, kernel project is famous for kind of having a toxic atmosphere, right? And Linus has basically said that he equates what that thing that most of us call toxicity with meritocracy with with like you know the, in other words the kinds of people who write the kinds of code that he wants to end up in the linux kernel are the kinds of people who flourish in the atmosphere he has set up and uh, maybe that's actually true but i just don't think the linux kernel project has run the experiment of trying to forking the project and running a nice version you know where everyone is welcomed warmly and and uh, not insulted personally by a charismatic leader in which they can see whether that theory is actually true. Right, right. I, I was actually not even thinking about projects that are that are more than 10 years old, but even projects that start today um, struggle with this, right? Like just acknowledging that soft skills matter and that somebody needs to pick up this kind of community work. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's interesting that you said that you wrote the book in you know 2005, around this time when you felt like people were starting to notice and care about the the need for skills beyond um, coding. But I feel like that's almost what people would say about right now, too. So I wonder, like, if anything's even changed in <laughs> well, 10 years or, or not. Well, just imagine how much worse things would be, right? <laughs> if yeah. We hadn't all <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you never have an alternate universe in which to run the experiment, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it will always be true because, um, because the startup costs in open source are so low, um, although that's changing a little bit. We can talk about that later. So the, the people who start projects, will, they'll just land in it from coming from a technical interest. And so they just, they're not starting out by thinking of soft skills. 
Um, so the projects are always launched in a way that's sort of biased toward a certain kind of culture. And then they, they end up having to correct toward a, uh, a more socially functioning culture, um, even though that imposes a small amount of overhead on the, on the technical running of the project. And like, if it's a useful project and people are like, well, I'm going to use it. Um, or even if it's not useful, but it's just kind of legacy being used. It's like, what incentive is there really? I think it's still very hard to tie together. In some cases you can tie together like the health of a project with its popularity, but sometimes it's a popular project and it's just not that kind of, I mean, not that kind of place. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, I can, I can only make anecdotal studies of that like I've, yeah. I've seen, um, well, one example is the LibreOffice project um, has really gone through a great deal of trouble to be welcoming to developers and and to make their their development um, their initial development process easier. Like building a project is now way way easier than it used to be. They just really sunk a lot of time into making it easy to compile it from source um, to welcome new developers. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's having a good effect, but. You, you like, how, how do you know how popular or how successful the project would be without that? You just don't. You mentioned that you, you released it under a Creative Commons license. Um, and I saw that you, mm -hmm. you've actually kind of kept it um, a little bit up to date and you've kind of pushed small changes to it over time. Um, but in, in 2013, you decided to actually do an, a full new edition of the book. What precipitated, you know, the need for an entire new edition rather than just adjustment? Oh, uh, a few things. Um, one, the, the adjustments that I had been doing uh, in the years from 2006, roughly, to 2013, they weren't that trivial. Um, I mean, it was, there were a lot of small-scale changes that went in. I, I think most, most sections of the book got touched, some of them pretty heavily. But I was never thinking of it as a full rewrite. And then it was really partly my own feeling about certain things that were out of date and partly feedback I was getting from other people. Like, one thing everyone notice and I notice too, um, because I also use Git for, for my coding work, although I use Subversion for, for non-coding uh, version control, was that all the examples use Subversion, which was totally the right thing to do in 2005, because that was the thing that you stored your open source code in, but it just wasn't by 2013. Like Git was the obvious answer. And, and frankly, even though the, the site itself is not open source, GitHub was clearly the thing to use for examples. I mean, most most active open source code is just on GitHub. And if the book doesn't acknowledge that fact, then it's just, it's just not reflecting reality and it's not giving people the smoothest entry into open source that they can have. So one obvious thing was the revamping of all the examples to use Git instead of Subversion and to talk about GitHub. And also in general, the project hosting situation had changed. Like, I, I'm sorry, I just don't consider SourceForge a thing anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> too, too many ads. <laughs> not it, too much visual noise, um, not compelling enough functionality. And that's despite the fact that the SourceForge platform uh, itself finally went open source um, as the Eldora project, uh, which is great. I'd love to be using it, but I'm afraid I just have a much better experience with, with GitHub and Git. So that's what I use. So the, the, the recommendations about how to host projects uh, really needed to change to be oriented more around a Git-based universe and to at least acknowledge and, and recommend GitHub while acknowledging that it itself is not open source. Um, although I hope they, who knows, they may uh, see a grand strategic vision whereby opening up their actual platform makes sense someday. I think that the, you know, the real secret sauce there is the DevOps, it's not the code. Um, so I, I hope they do that someday. The other thing that changed uh, kind of in a big way was 
what I, I think of as the, the slow rise of business to business open source, which is the, the old, uh, the old cliche was, oh, open source always starts when some individual programmer needs to scratch an itch. Um, and so she like, uh, you know, she needs to analyze her log files better. So she writes a log analyzer and then she realizes that there are other system ends who need to do the same. And so they start collaborating and now you've got an open source log analyzer. Um, and she's the de facto leader of this new open source project. Well, that did happen a lot, but now you have things like Android. You have uh, businesses putting out open source code bases or TensorFlow. And I, I don't mean to pick on uh, Google examples only. It's just that those are the first things that come to mind. But Facebook also does this. Uh, Hewlett Packard does it. Like lots of companies are releasing open source projects, which are, I guess you could call them, it's a corporation scratching a corporation's itch but it is not a case of an individual developer. It's, it's a management move. It is done for strategic reasons, which they can articulate to themselves. And sometimes they also articulate to the world. And I thought that the rise of that kind of project needed to be covered better. Mm. Um, and that, and that that was a trend that if the book could explain it better to other managers in tech or tech related companies, that perhaps it would encourage some of them to join that trend. Uh, and then there was, sorry, I'm realizing as you asked it, that there's, there's one more component of the answer. The other thing that changed was that I expected uh, governments to be doing more open source by 2013 than they were. And I had at that point been very active in trying to help some government agencies uh, launch technical products as open source um, because they were, they were going to need that technology anyway. Why, that's taxpayer funded. Why not make it open source? Um, and they were just uh, really culturally not suited to it. Um, it was just many, many things about the way governments do technology development and the way they do procurement and the way they are tend to be risk averse to the exclusion of, of many other considerations really made open source an uphill struggle for them. And I wanted the book to talk a lot more about that because I wanted it to be something that government uh, decision makers could could circulate and use as a way to reassure themselves that they could do open source and that it could be successful and that they didn't have to look at it as a risky move. So there were a bunch of, there were some new trends that I wanted to cover and then there were some new goals that I had for the book and they just required a kind of ground up reorganization and revamp. Wow, that's great. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, Carl's going to get into uh, how GitHub has uh, changed the open source landscape. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I want to tell you about our cloud server of choice, Linode.com. Head to Linode.com slash RFC, get an SSE server running in seconds, plans start at just 10 bucks a month. And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of Changelog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at Changelog.com is on a Linode server. What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location, and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Linode.com slash RFC. And we're back with Carl Fogel. Carl, in your mind, what have Git and GitHub changed about open source today? What are the, the biggest sort of shifts that happened from the uh, subversion Apache days to, to now? Well, so I might have to ask you for help answering this because I wonder if I, if I was so comfortable with old tools that maybe I was blind to something that was difficult about them. 
I didn't feel like GitHub changed the culture tremendously, except in the sense that Twitter changed the culture of the internet, which is to say it gave everyone a, an agreed on namespace. Right now, Twitter is essentially the, hey, if you have an internet username, it's whatever your username is on Twitter, right? That's just how your, that's your handle now. And in open source, your GitHub handle, which, which for many people is the same as their Twitter handle, um, is that's like your chief identifier. And it's not a completely unified namespace. And there are plenty of projects that host in other places and, and many developers contribute uh, to projects that are hosted in places other than GitHub. But it is sort of a unified namespace. Like if you have an open source project and you don't have uh, the project name somewhere on GitHub, someone else is sure to take it for their fork, right? <laughs> so you've got you've to get that real estate even if you're not hosting there. But I think the way GitHub wants to think about it is that they made it a lot easier for people to track sources, to make lightweight, quick, uh, so-called drive-by contributions. Um, and to maintain what used to be called vendor branches, that is to say, uh, permanent non-hostile forks, uh, internal uh, or, or sort of feature forks that are maintained in parallel with the project, uh, where the upstream isn't going to ever take the patches, but they, uh, they have otherwise no, no particular animosity toward the changes and are, you know, are, are even willing to make some adjustments so that the people who need to maintain the, that separate branch can do so. So I think their goal was to make all that stuff easier um, and also to make gazillions of dollars, which I'm, I'm happy to see they're doing. Um, and, uh, and I think that there was uh, some, like I think that they, it is part of GitHub's self-identity. I mean, for the upper, the executive and the upper management team, it's part of their self-identity to think of themselves as supporting open source, that they are doing good for open source. Um, and, and as I said, like, I'm, I always remember that the platform itself is not open source, but, uh, that aside, I think in many ways it's true. They do a lot of things to support open source. Um, the, the moves that they made to, uh, give technical support and kind of a little nudge to projects to get, uh, real open source licenses in their repositories was a really helpful thing. Um, so now, nowadays, most active open source projects on GitHub do have a license file, and that's partly because GitHub made a push to help that happen. Um, and they've done a lot to, to support getting open source into government agencies and things like that. Um, so I think they had sort of cultural motivations as well as, as technical and financial motivations. So has it changed the culture of open source? So that's the thing is, I'm not really sure it was all that hard to contribute to an open source project before GitHub. Maybe that's because my specialty was working on one of the tools that is the main part of the contribution workflow with the version control tools. I worked on CVS, uh, which was the main open source version control system. And then I worked on Subversion, which was for a while the main open source version control system. And so if I wanted to make a drive by a contribution to some other project, of course, I never had any problem doing it because like I, you know, the version control tool was probably something I had hacked on. There was just no trouble. But maybe you could tell me, like, was it actually harder? So yeah, there, well, there there is one thing. There's a couple of things that you're glancing over, right? Just just yeah. a couple, um, and 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 I think it is like because and and I I suffer from the same problem where like you'll jump through hoops without realizing that they're hoops because you're just used exactly. to doing this kind of stuff, right? But the, the Twitter analogy works really well, right? Because so yes, there's this there's the shared namespace, 
Um, and before that, you know, people had email addresses. It's not like we lacked identity, but, but it did sort of right. unify those. So you know where to find everybody by a particular name. You know where to find a project by a particular name. Um, but another yeah. thing that Twitter does, too, is that it, it, it has a set of norms around how you communicate and how you do things with DMs and at replies and stuff like that, right? So and previously, yes, like, really like point, yeah. source control is certainly part of the contribution experience. But, you know, if GitHub was just Git, it wouldn't be the hub. <laughs> there wouldn't be a GitHub, right? So <laughs> there's there's an extension of the of the the language and the tools around collaboration that they also unify, right? Like um, like in, in Subversion, I can create a diff, but like how I send that diff to you and how you communicate that it may or may not go in and in or out, how we might uh, communicate about that, that review process, that is not a unified um, experience across projects, like in, in older open source, the way that it is in GitHub, right? That's, that's true. And that's a really good point. I mean, it was, it was never hard to find out. Um, like usually it's you, you mail the diff to the mailing list and people review it there. Right. Um, but you had to find out the address. You had to go read the project's contribution documentation and maybe that didn't exist or it was not easy to find. Um, and you're right on GitHub. It's like submit a pull request, you know what to do for the repository make your branch, make your change turn it into a pull request against the upstream. And now it's being tracked just like an issue. And by the way, the issue tracking is also integrated. So now you don't have to go searching for the project's issue tracker. Yeah. And I mean, that workflow itself may not be more discoverable than sending an email to or sending a diff to a mailing list. Right. Um, but mm -hmm. once you do it, it's the same everywhere. Right. Like I think that's right. the, yeah. the bigger shift. Right? No. In, in fact, I think it's less discoverable in the sense that the, the actual, I mean, I've trained a lot of people in using Git. Um, I, I go to a, a wonderful organization. I'm, in fact, I'm going to do a shout out for them. Chai Hack Night, C-H-I-HackNight.org, uh, the Chicago uh, Hack Night on Tuesday nights here. And there are a lot of newcomers there who haven't used Git or GitHub before where they've heard of it and tried it out. So I've, I've had to like walk people through this process of creating a PR and like, you know, making their own fork of the repository. And people get so confused. Be like, Wait, I'm forking the repository, but what's a branch? What's a repository? And where does the PR live? And like, it's conceptually actually not easy at all. But once they know it, they know it for every project on GitHub. And I think your, your point is very good. It's not that it's easier. It's just that, that you only have to learn it once now. I think there's also something to be said for just like friendliness of GitHub, like even just visually, right? And Twitter is again, maybe yeah. a great analogy for that of just like, it's, yes. it's just prettier. and <laughs> People feel more comfortable yeah, on like, a more, I guess, like consumer facing website than kind of like navigating around the corners of the internet. Yeah. And that's one, one thing that Subversion never had was a default visual uh, web browser interface. Mm -hmm. um, like there were, there were several of them and you had your project had to pick. And so the one you picked might be different from the one some other project picked. And with GitHub, it's like, there are a lot of people who kind of think of Git as GitHub. Like they think that that web interface that you see on GitHub, that is part of Git. I mean, obviously, in some technical sense, that's not correct. But in a, in a larger sense, as far as their experience and their actual workflow is concerned, that's a pretty accurate way of looking at it. Right. Yeah, I, I think also, too, and, and this is one that um, is really easy to glance over if you have any experience. But um, because we're in this new publish first mindset, right, newer people will publish stuff and put it up there um, and they'll, they'll actually get contributions. Um, and it actually takes a, a much broader skill set to 
take contributions than it takes to, to push them to other projects, um, especially in, in traditional mm -hmm. tooling. Um, and GitHub also makes that incredibly easy, right? Like their, their diff view is quite nice. Um, you know, they have yeah, image diffing really and all of, all, all, <laughs> yeah. all of these other features, right? And so if you're, if you're somebody that doesn't know Git very well and you just like, you know, got your project up, um, getting a contribution and then having to pull it down locally and look at the diff is actually like a, a whole big extension of, of that collaboration tool chain. And they make that so easy for first time uh, publishers that are now dealing with contributions coming in. And it, it makes a, it makes that workflow for them really easy. And then also just allows them to enjoy the process of getting contributions from people. Yeah. So you're right. I never thought about that, but they've, the process of becoming an open source maintainer is a lot easier on GitHub. And it's so satisfying when you click the merge pull request button and it just goes in and like, you just, all you did was you clicked a green button and you've accepted a contribution from a perfect stranger on the internet. Like it's so empowering, right? <laughs> and that was not an easy process for new maintainers in the old system. You'd, you'd like manually apply a diff and then commit it and you'd have to write their name by hand in the log message or something. I think we're also skipping over this entire generation of tools like Track and, and Jira and stuff that, that in a lot of ways were much harder to use than sending a diff to a mailing list. Oh, I, well, yeah, again, I don't, I don't know because I got so used to them. Um, and they were, I don't think that they were a, a discrete generation. I think that they were a continuum of, of tools that as soon as, the, as soon as the web came around, you know, people started making uh, bug trackers that, you know, the original bug trackers were worked by email submission. Like you would communicate with them by sending them email and getting responses back. Mm -hmm. um, and that was actually like a lot of projects ran on that. And then uh, people started making websites that would track bugs and you could just interact with the website directly. And then that was integrated with wiki functionality and the wiki was invented. And it just took a while for interfaces to sort out the conventions that actually worked. And in a lot of ways, GitHub is the beneficiary of, of all the mistakes that everyone made before GitHub was created. Um, and, you know, if, GitHub, if GitHub had been invented in the year 2000, they would have made all those same series of mistakes themselves. But instead, they could just look back and see what everyone else did and not make those mistakes. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, no libel on them. Like, of course, that's right. what they should do. But it's, that's why it worked out so well for like them. Like MySpace and Facebook or any sort of <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. second adopter. Um, yeah. Well, I, I do yeah. think there's an, another element of this, though, which is that those tools, I mean, like Jira in particular, is, it's, is actually very good at this. Um, it, it's developed for maintainers and for teams with a big project and a big process. So it is customizable to a project's process, which means that, you know, that's great for that individual project if it, if it exists uh, alone by itself. But in an open source ecosystem where every time I go to a Jira, there's a different workflow, um, that's incredibly, you know, daunting for you know, individuals out there. Oh, and so yeah. I think I think GitHub, like because they were thinking about Git and the scale of people and contributions and forks and repos, they, you know, you kind of take for granted that like, no, you can't have super customized workflows at the, at the repository. Yeah. One of the things I kind of admire about GitHub's management team is, I mean, if you look, GitHub has its own bug tracker, right? I mean, even though they, they haven't opened the source code, but you can file bugs against GitHub itself. And that that tracker is public. And if you look through there, there are like thousands of these feature requests and modifications that people want that would, for each person requesting, this change would suit their needs. It would really make life easier for their project. And basically GitHub employees spend their lives saying no. Like mm. you just look in those threads and they're, and they're polite and they, and they explain why, but they're like, you know, they have to turn down most of those requests because they, they have to keep... They have to really think about the big picture and keep GitHub simple for the majority of open source projects. 
Um, and they do a really good job at that. One of the things I wonder a lot, and I'd like to actually look into it more closely, is GitHub, the, the folks who run GitLab probably, oh, I'm sorry, there's a siren in the background. I'm going to pause for a moment. <laughs> it's, it's quite loud here. I don't know how it sounds in the mic. Yeah, yeah, we can hear it. We'll just wait a second. Sorry, yeah. There's no nowhere in this building that I could get away from that. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, in a, I'm in an urban canyon where sirens get amplified. Um, so I was going to say, one of the um, things that I, I hope is happening, and I assume it is, and I would like to look into it more, is that GitLab uh, and, and other open source, or in GitLab's case, like there is an open source edition and also a proprietary edition, should be using GitHub as kind of like their free of charge research lab, right? Like all the things that are being requested in GitHub and all the decisions GitHub is making and all the innovations that GitHub has to not experiment with because of their scale and all the, and all the existing customer base that they can't afford to tick off. Um, that is a real opportunity for these other platforms to say, hey, GitHub made the wrong call there. We're going to do that and try it out because they have less to lose right now and a lot to gain. And I think that there could be a very productive interplay between the two um, that is, is in the long run good for open source. Um, we'll just have to see. But, but the fact that GitHub is making all these decisions kind of in public is, is very useful, I think. Yeah, I agree. So when, when you first got involved in, in open source um, in the 90s, it, it was sort of a counterculture movement. Um, sort of. And, and of all the things you could say about open source today, I, I don't think that you could say that it was a, it's a counterculture movement. <laughs> Well, it's funny, like, I think open source no longer thinks of itself as a counterculture movement, uh, especially in the United States. Um, in, well, actually, let me, let me back up a bit. So, so the term open source, at least for this usage of it, was coined in uh, 97, I think. Right, right. Um, and there was, open source was going on, uh, you know, for many years prior to that. And I was, you know, had run an open source company and had, had been a full-time open source developer long before the term was coined. And people just used the term free software and got confused because there was just widespread confusion about whether that meant free as in there's no, no, no charge. Like, you know, AOL used to ship CDs to everyone's front doorstep and those, that software was free, but it wasn't free in the sense of free software, um, in the sense of freedom. Um, so there was a lot of terminological confusion. One of the things that I think is, is uh, downplayed today or sort of a little, there's a little bit of historical amnesia about is the degree to which the coining of the term open source was not simply an attempt to separate uh, a development methodology from the ideological drives of the Free Software Foundation, Richard Stallman, but was also just an attempt to resolve a real terminology problem um, that, that a lot of people, and especially people who ran open source businesses were having, which was what what term do we use that won't confuse our customers and the people who use our software? Um, and and there was uh, Cygnus Solutions, which later got bought by Red Hat, tried tried to go with the term sourceware for a while, um, and that was an interesting coinage. And in fact, my my company, um, Cyclic Software, which I was running with Jim Blandy at the time, uh, we actually contacted them to see about using that term. Um, and we we got a non-committal response where it wasn't quite clear if they were trying to trademark it or if they intended for only Cygnus to oh, use it. So <laughs> that didn't apply, right? That wasn't going to work. <laughs> if only Cygnus can use it, that's not a that's not going to be the that term that takes over. Yeah. And it, anyway, it didn't have a good adjectival form, so it wasn't. It, you know, it, on its own merits, it had problems anyway. 
And then eventually when, when uh, the term open source came out, I just felt this tremendous relief. I was like, okay, this, this, every, no term is perfect. This term has some possible confusions and problems as well, but it is way easier for, for explanatory purposes than free software has been. So I'm just going to start using it. And I didn't intend any ideological switch by that. I was still very pro-free software. I ran only free software in my boxes. I only developed free software. Um, but I just, just thought, okay, here's a, here's a term that also means freedom that, that will confuse people less. And then like roughly a year after that coinage, when Stallman and the FSF, the Free Software Foundation, realized that a lot of the people who were driving the term open source, um, who had founded the term, um, not necessarily the people who were using the term, which was a lot of us, were also not on board with his theology. Did they start to make this distinction between free software and open source mm -hmm. and say, you know, you just because you support one doesn't mean you support the other. They're not the same thing even though it's the exact same set of licenses and software. So what do we mean by not the same thing? Um, so that, that ideological split is kind of a post facto creation. It was not actually something that was going on to the degree that, that it was later alleged to be going on. And in your book, I'm trying to remember, I think it's called producing open source software, but isn't the sub? title also like uh, how, to, how to run yeah, a free software is, it's project? a total diplomatic split the difference yeah it's yeah it's you really went right down the software. middle there how to run a successful free software project yeah yeah <laughs> didn't commit to either one <laughs> um well i didn't want to because to me it's the same like you know like if there were two words for the vegetable broccoli i might use both words but it's the same vegetable i just open source to me is one thing i can call it free software i can call it broccoli, I can call it open source, it is still the same thing. And people have all sorts of different motivations for doing it. And someone's motivations for participating in a project or launching a project are not part of the project's license. And therefore, they're not, they're not part of the term for me. It's a good transition into our next section. We're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the mainstream sort of version of open source. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash changelog. Check them out. Get 90 days of the bootstrap plan totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers. Take a listen. One of the key parts about doing continuous delivery, you don't just have to test your software, but you have to constantly keep track of it. You're going to be doing deploys 10 times a day or 20 times a day, and you have to know that each deploy works, and the way to do that is to have really good monitoring. And Rollbar is, is literally the thing that you need to do that monitoring. You need to make sure that every time you deploy, you're going to get an alert if something goes wrong, and that's exactly what Rollbar does for, for CircleCI. So obviously CircleCI is important to your customers. You shouldn't have errors, you shouldn't have bugs. And the purpose of a CI is continuous delivery, obviously, but getting your customer's code to production in a fast manner that's tested and all the necessary things a CI provides. Tell me how important Rollbar is to your team and your organization. 
We operate at serious scale and literally the first thing we do when we've created a new service is, is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility uh, and without that visibility it would be impossible to run at the scale we do and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just, it just wouldn't be possible. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your time. So listeners, we have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked, totally for free. Give Rollbar a try today. Head over to rollbar.com slash changelog. We're back with Carl Fogel. Um, so Carl, today a lot of people are saying that open source has basically won um, in the sense that a lot of companies are using it. A lot of people are throwing around the term open source um, who might not have traditionally been engaged with open source. Um, do you think that open source has won or they're just sort of like different battles to be fought? Is that helpful vocabulary? Oh, it has absolutely not won. I, I do not know why people think that. So where do you walk into a store and buy a mobile phone that's running a truly open source operating system? I mean, yeah, Android Core is, is, is open source or is derived from the Android open source project. I guess when people say it's one, what they mean is that if you think of, of software, think of software as a sphere where it's constantly expanding or, or as Mark Andreessen said, eating the world, um, the surface of that sphere is mostly proprietary. The the ratio of the volume to the surface is constantly increasing, and most of that volume is open source. So people who are exposed to the back end of software and who are aware of what's going on behind the scenes in tech say, oh, look, open source is winning, or open source has won, because so much of the volume inside the sphere is open source. But most of the world only has contact with the surface, and most of that surface is proprietary. And that, that is the, that surface is the only link that they're going to have with any kind of meaningful software freedom uh, or lack of software freedom, um, their ability to customize, um, their, their ability to learn from the devices that they use, uh, their ability, uh, not, I mean, it's not the case that every person should be a programmer, but perhaps they should have the ability to hire someone else or, or you know, bring something to a third-party service that specializes in, in customization and get something fixed or, or made to behave in a different way. And for most of the surface of that sphere, it's completely impenetrable and opaque, and you just can't do that stuff. You have to accept what is handed to you. Um, so no, I don't think open source is one in the meaningful ways. I think there's a, a really important distinction there between um, software as infrastructure and software on the consumer-facing side. And like the research I've been doing and, and where I'm interested is almost exclusively on infrastructure. And I noticed there's this difference on um, yeah, yeah. maybe the, the ideals of free software to begin with were around, you know, being able to change the Xerox printer, right? Or that was the Richard Stallman thing. Right. That's the legendary um, story, which, which I think is right. true. Um, about Stallman trying to fix a printer, not having source code to the printer driver. Right. And so I, I wonder, like, is that like, yeah, frustrating for them of, of like, <laughs> in some ways it really won on maybe the like infrastructure side, um, but it, it, and it's almost even, I keep saying that, yeah, quote unquote one, um, or, or just been massively adopted almost because it's equivalent to free labor and, it, uh, or free, yeah, like price free stuff that they can, um, that startups can use or whatever. 
Um, and that's not necessarily actually has a needle moved at all on the principles side of thing, or does it even matter? Well, to me, it's not, it's not a, um, I mean, it's, I have a very utilitarian view of the principle side of it, although I do, I do think that software freedom is important, but, um, but it's increasingly an issue of control over your personal life and your, your families and friends lives, or, or at least being able not to, to put them in harm's way. Um, I mean, a great example is um, Karen Sandler, the executive director of the Software Freedom Conservancy. Um, she has a heart device. She has a congenital heart condition. She has a device attached to her heart, and that device is running proprietary software. That software, um, I don't know the exact version running on her device, but so that type of software uh, has been shown to be extremely vulnerable to um, hacking, you know, to, to like remote control. Um, and in fact, Dick Cheney, the vice president, had, the, had a similar device in his heart and apparently had the wireless features on the device disabled for security reasons. Wow. Um, he didn't want to be, you know, the fact that that code that think about the fact that the um, federal agency in the U.S. that is responsible for approving medical devices not only does not review software source code, it does not even require that the source code uh, be placed in escrow with the agency in case an investigation is later necessary. It just evaluates the entire system as a black box and says, you know, yes, yes, approved or no, not approved. And they, they have nowhere near the resources or the competence or, or let alone the mandate to review the software for vulnerabilities when, when software vulnerabilities are like increasingly you know, affecting everyone. I mean, everyone's, everyone's had a credit card uh, that's account that's been hacked in some way. I wonder if those battles are going to be uh, addressed, maybe not through software freedom or open source or those types of movements. But I, I, I guess when you, as you're describing, I'm thinking more around like hacker maker movements and like hardware stuff um, where they might come at it from the mm -hmm. same angle of saying like, why can't I just like, you know? Yeah modify well, anything. Yeah, you do see a lot of that. Like, what was that That great, um, I saw a keynote at, at the O'Reilly OzCon, the open source convention. Uh, you probably saw it too, the, the woman who had um, hacked her own insulin pump, right? The software that controls oh, wow. <laughs> a device that dispenses a chemical into your bloodstream um, turned out to be hackable, so they hacked it. Um, so I think you're right, the maker movement is driving it. And they, they share a lot of language and, and, uh, and, and people with the open source movement. Um, and I, I just use the term open source movement unironically. It, to me, it's largely the same as the free software movement. So yeah, there, there are various pressures toward um, people having the ability to, to customize or to, to invite other people to help them customize the devices that uh, you know, run increasingly large swaths of our lives. Um, but I certainly, I, I guess what's happened is Open source kept winning individual battles, but the, the number of things that software took a controlling role in kept increasing so rapidly that the percentage of things that, that are, are open source on the surface has been going down, even as open source keeps winning area after area. I think that if you, if you separate it kind of nicely into two camps, if you look at the production of software versus the consumption of software, 
Um, mm-hmm. The reason that we keep talking about open source is winning is because it really has won or very close to winning the production of software side, right? So like if you were a developer mm-hmm. in the in the early 90s, like most, if not all of your tool chain was proprietary. The, the way that you develop software was to use other proprietary software. That's completely turned on uh, its head. If you're, if you're actually engaged yeah, in the Yeah, it was probably true, software, though it didn't have to be. Yeah, yeah it, did, it didn't have to be at the time. But now, I mean, the, the predominant way that you develop any software, including proprietary software, is to use a bunch of open source software, right? Right. Like yeah, that, that's a really, you know, that's a really yeah. good point. I, I think you're right. I mean, I mean that, that proprietary code that's on that hard device is probably compiled with GCC, right? <laughs> I mean, this is... Or one of the other free compilers. Free, right, uh, free LVM, software. right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, because our world is... is the, the voices in our world are so dominated by the people that have actually produced the software that there's there is this mindset that hey I, I live in this world all day that it's 99% open source it feels like it's one um, and and I think the the reason that it won though in that in that space and not in the consumer space is that there's a utilitarian reason that you need yes. something to be open source, right? Like it is not, it, it is infinitely more useful if it's open source and more usable as a producer if it's open source. Um, and it, it had, there's all these network effects that make it better over time that I can evaluate as a producer. But if you're looking at products yeah. and the consumption of software, um, it being open source or not is not visible to the consumer of that of that software, um, at least not immediately. Um, and so there, there needs to be some kind of utilitarian argument around that. Um, and I think it may be privacy and security, right? Like that that's a very, very good argument. And it's, it's getting much more tangible to, to consumers nowadays. Yeah, I think that's at least part of it. Um, and that has been a winning argument. I mean, a lot of the open source privacy and security projects have seen uh, a lot more adoption and also a lot more um, funding because many of just for for various reasons many of those projects tend to be nonprofit or um, at least uh, not not plausibly for profit um, and I definitely uh, like it, it's very clear that for all of his eloquence as a writer and speaker um, which I think is considerable the reason Richard Stallman succeeded was Emacs and GCC like he wrote or or caused. Uh, people to coalesce and to help him write uh, two really great programs um, and then motivated a lot of people to write uh, a lot of the pieces of the rest of a Unix-like system. Um, uh, didn't, didn't unfortunately get the kernel. <laughs> Linus Torvalds got that and that has caused uh, some bad blood ever since. But um, it, was, it was writing good code that people could actually use that gave him influence. That's why they took his, his other writing seriously. It was the, the utility of the code. And, but I think going back to the way you started that presenting that idea, I think one of the important goals, one of the important motivating factors in the free software movement was keeping blurry the distinction between producers and consumers, was the idea that there should not be a firm wall between these two camps and that anyone who is uh, just thinks of themselves as, as only using software, um, I, I sort of prefer user to consumer because when you use software, you don't, it's not like apples where, you know, once you use it, it's consumed. Um, <laughs> right. The software is still there after you run it, so it's not, it's not been consumed. But the, the idea that any user has the potential by very incremental degrees to be invited into the production of the software. In fact, that's, how, that's what happened to me. That's how I got into it was I was just using the stuff um, for, for like writing my papers in, in college um, and exploring the, the, the nascent internet. 
and uh, someone showed me how to use the the info tree, which was that was that was like the documentation tree for documentation that covered all of the the GNU free software utilities. And right at the top of the the introductory node, the top level node in the info documentation browser, um, was a paragraph that said, "You can contribute to this documentation. You know, you can to learn how to add more material to this info tree. See here, click here." Um, or click click meant navigate with a keyboard and like hit return. I don't think there was a mouse. There was no mouse on those terminals. There were VT100 terminals. But the um, the idea that the the system was was inviting me to participate in the creation of more of the system was that struck me as really interesting. So the idea was to keep the the surface porous and allow uh, allow for the possibility that those users who have the potential to become participants in improving the system do so. Um, that was, it wasn't just freedom as an abstract concept, it was freedom as a practice. And the, you know, it's still today, I think the way a lot of people get into open source is that they, they learn that they can affect the way a web page behaves by going behind the scenes and editing the JavaScript that got downloaded to the browser and noticing that things change. And they, they realize, hey, this is, this is not a read-only system. This, the whole thing is read-write. I can, I can make things happen. That's what um, worries me about a lot of the user-facing devices and interfaces uh, that we see today is that there, there is no doorway. There's no porousness to the surface. You, you have no opportunity to customize or hack on it or get in touch with the people who are one level closer to, to the source code. I think there are a couple of interesting things that might be happening in tandem around that now which is i mean we haven't talked about this at all but just the definition of a software developer has changed radically in the past five years um mm -hmm. where a lot more people are learning how to code and maybe they're not at the a very high technical level but just enough that they are able to modify small things around them and and see that power um i think learning mm -hmm. how to code has just become so much more accessible so you have so many people that yeah. are interested in modifying the world around them um in much more casual ways and like that that is blurring the line between consumer and producer and i think i mean you know just the mm -hmm. like looking at any child today and like everybody is like learning how to code and and just imagine when they grow up and they just expect that everything around them can be transformed um so it's almost like people are coming at it from a different direction um but then at the same time yeah. you see like all these like very proprietary platforms that are um, basically exploiting network effects to like centralize um, where people congregate on the internet. And those yeah, things are still yes. total black boxes. And so, yeah, I don't know what happens when like the youngest generation now grows up. Will they say like, this is bullshit. <laughs> like <laughs> we were, we, this is not how we were raised to, to yeah, see the they'll, internet. They'll say this is bullshit, but they'll say it on Facebook. So tyranny of, yeah. Yeah. I think that point about network effects is really important. What what happened as as um an increasingly large percentage of humanity got internet connections mm -hmm. was that the the kind of the payoff ratio for building a proprietary system changed. Like it used to be that if you were building a system there was there was some reward for making it a little hackable because the users you were likely to attract, well, people on the internet at that time were already more likely to have potential to contribute to your system. So there was some, statistically, some potential reward for making your system have a slightly open door to people coming in and helping out. But 
if you're launching something like Facebook um, or Snapchat or whatever in the, in the age of most of humanity being online, then the, the trouble you go through to make that thing hackable versus the, you know, versus the payoff when most of those users are not going to take advantage of that, the, the reward matrix just looks different now. And maybe it just doesn't make economic sense for those proprietary platforms to have a porous surface. And oddly, you see like on Snapchat, for example, where people are like, Snapchat offers tons of things to make people essentially modify the world around them, like all like stickers, drawing on things, yeah. whatever. So there it's, yep. it's that same behavior, but it's still on Snapchat's platform. And that could also be. Right. And they, they control it and they and they track like there's no you can't fork Snapchat and make your stickers in the forked Snapchat. Right. Let alone do something else. So, yeah, people. I mean, the, the uncharitable way to say it is that everyone's uh, creative and and environmental improvement impulses are being uh, co-opted and redirected into uh, limited and controlled actions that do not threaten the platform providers. Basically, everyone's every platform provider's model business model is I want to be like a phone carrier. Like I just want to have a total, you know, I want to have total control over the user base and have people have to join in order to get access to the rest of my user base. And that's just that creates a mentality that is antithetical to the way open source works. You don't fork a monopoly based thing. You don't fork a thing that has network effects. I, 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 have, a, I have a hard time thinking that that is like necessarily that these things have to be in conflict, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I don't think that users are ever gonna, I don't think that you can sell a product to users in a competitive market based on the values that, you know, will attract a community around people kind of hacking it. Like you have to be a great product compared to everybody else on the terms of that most users are using it. But oh, that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't also be hackable. You just you just have to have a culture around the product that actually creating something good, right? Like look, look at like the one success story that we have for a short period of time, which was Mozilla. Like, you know, they they won for a while and took a huge amount of market share away from Microsoft, enough that Microsoft actually came and participated in web standards again um, because they made a better browser, like for users, not just for people that were hacking on websites, right? And it's because it was yeah. better, not necessarily because it yeah. was... Oh, no, I, think, right. I mean, my doom and gloom isn't, it's, it's not a moral condemnation, it's an observation of economic reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess, like, I yeah, I wonder... you're saying is correct, but it's still not good news for open source. No. And I think that's what's so interesting about right now and even how people are using the term open source. And a lot of people say something is open source when it's not actually. Um, and so like the, the term itself yeah. has been sort of being like co-opted into different definitions. And for a, a lot of people now that are just coming into it, they, they hear they say the term open source and they just mean I like, why shouldn't I share what I made with the world or why shouldn't I like change something that I see? Um, but it doesn't necessarily carry all that other history or expectations with it um well yeah though that co-opting has been going on like there have ever since the term was coined there have been groups and people using it in ways that are don't mean what it originally meant sorry there's the siren is happening again there have been people co-opting the term since it was coined but there have been there's always been counter pressure to preserve its original meaning because the original meaning is so unambiguous and so clear and so easy to identify uh, it's so easy to identify when it's being correctly used that the counter pressure usually is successful. So I don't see any more of that now than, than in the past. Um, I think that's just a constant, a constant 
like terminological tug of war that's going on. But mostly the meaning of the term has is as strong now as it ever was, I think. Well, I think it's as strong now to a set of people that still hold on to that term really strongly. Um, but I think they're almost, to be frank, I think they're almost putting blinders on to how like so many other people are using it. At what point? And we've talked about this. Like, so at what point does yeah. that new definition just become the definition because so many other people are using it that way? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's how language works. And I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But I guess what I'm saying is um, we... Uh, or at least I try to see that happening, and a, a number of people do. And then they actually go to the where possible when it's an organizational source of of terminology dilution. Will go to that organization and say, "Hey, you know, the term doesn't mean that. Stop doing that." And in almost every case, the organization reforms their usage. And that's the only reason that open source still means anything is because that constant process is going on. And I haven't actually seen it. Um, I haven't seen the ratio changing that much lately. And of course, this is a very hard thing to gather data on. And you have, uh, Nadia, you have been trying to gather data on this. And you've been out there doing research on this. So you might be right. Um, but the blinders are at any rate not intentional. Like we are actually out actively looking for that. Um, and it, to me, it looks like, oh, it's about, about the same as it ever was. And just got to stay vigilant. So, so that, that's a nice recap of uh, the problems of people misusing the term or using it for something that's not within the scope of what open source means. But there's also a fair amount of, I don't, I don't know how to say this without being mean, um, but oh, go for it. <laughs> uh, corporations or, or projects that are open source within the definition of open source, but aren't what we would call open. <laughs> well, actually, I think that's okay. And I, I don't care. Uh, in other words, if you're forkable, you're open source. And if you run the project as a, as a closed society and, and like even the developers' names are kept top secret, as long as the source code is, is available and it's under an open source license and it could be forked, you're open source. Is that just, you know, you're thinking more about the, the future of, the, of it rather than the current reality? Like, even if I can't get anything done now, if it becomes a big enough problem, I have that option, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that you have that option affects the behavior of the central maintainers, whether they admit it openly or not. The, the, the knowledge that your thing can be forked causes you to maintain it differently, even if you never respond to any of the PRs, the pull requests, you never respond to any of the emails of anyone from outside the maintainer group. Um, the mere fact that someone could fork it forces you to take certain decisions in certain directions so as not to increase the danger of forking, for example. So you still get open source dynamics, even when they're not visible. I mean, I mean Sorry, yeah, Nadia. yeah. I, I, like that, that's a good question, Nadia. I, I do think that some people well, put blinders well, on and, and try to ignore Sorry. it, but they but they tend to get reminded of it. <laughs> I mm. think I, I didn't hear Nadia's question. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just observing. I, I really wonder whether some companies actually see it that way, or whether they're actually acutely aware of the fear of a fork. Or because again, like we talked about network effects, right? And and where like even if nobody likes the thing anymore if everybody is using a certain thing it's very hard to actually switch off mm, well it just requires that. i mean for business to business open source i mean again android is a classic example google is very aware of the potential for forks uh the potential for forks they are very aware of the business implications um to the extent that those are predictable of depending on who might fork it and indeed some forks have started to appear and that is something that gets factored into their decisions as to how they run their copy of the Android project, which so far most companies still socially accept as the master copy, but they are not 
required to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so that means Android, at least the Android uh, core code is indeed open source, even though uh, it is not run in the way that most open source projects are. Although I think actually they, they have taken contributions from the outside. It's not, it's not quite as closed as, as the tech press uh, indicates this is it is. Like, I, I guess, I mean, from what I understand of your views, you see it as like, you know, the license and the, these like guaranteed freedoms are, are what makes it open source. And that's all that really matters. Um, because well, you're saying, you know, if, if needed, you could always, you go fork it. I'm not quite saying that that's okay. all that really matters. I'm just saying that it's, it's the main thing. And like, sure, I would much rather have a project be run by a community, but, but that potential is always there as long as the open source license is there. Yeah, I, I guess I just, I see it as, the reason why I think like collaboration community is so intertwined is because like, again, network effects, right? And like, if you, it, it doesn't really matter whether something can technically be forked if there's actually no ability to change it. And so I, I worry that relying too much on that core definition could, um, could act. It, it's sort of like this great hypothetical by wonder whether it really happens. Like anyone can create an alternative oh, yeah. to Facebook in theory, but no one has successfully created an alternative because everyone's on Facebook. Well, but I don't think that network effects in an open source development environment are quite the same. Well, like, let's take a couple of examples. GCC had uh, got forked years ago. Um, it, it had a core group of maintainers, and then it had a bunch of um, revolutionaries who were not happy with how those maintainers were maintaining it. And from the beginning of the project, there was, there was no doubt about who the sort of socially accepted master copy was. It was the one maintained by the Free Software Foundation um, with a technical council um, that I don't know how they were selected, but I think Richard Stallman was involved in selecting them. And when these revolutionaries grew increasingly unhappy with how, with technical decisions um, being made and with how contributions were being accepted or not accepted, uh, they had corporate funding. They uh, went off and created EGCS. Um, EGCS started accepting all those patches that the GCC copy wouldn't take. And eventually it just kind of blew past GCC in terms of technical ability to the point where the FSF said, oh, well, I guess you're kind of where stuff is happening now. So we're just going to call the next version of GCC. We're just going to take the next version of EGCS and call that GCC and merge the two and you won. And so it was totally successful. And it happened because the problems were big enough that people were willing to devote resources to forking and solving them. Yeah. Um, could the same thing yeah. happen with the Linux kernel? Absolutely. If, if Linux started making bad decisions or if he started uh, ticking off too many people and enough, uh, enough kernel developers who had the sort of technical plausibility to launch a fork chose to make a fork, yeah, they would succeed. There's no question. But it's just that Linux is, is running the project well enough that no one needs to do that. Yeah, I see your point. It is different. Yeah, but but yeah, but Facebook, on the other hand, that's <laughs> that's a whole different kind of network effect. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean to completely argue your point away because I think it's a good one, which yeah, is that about my <laughs> there are network effects, and it is it is a lot of effort to fork a popular project that has a, a successful or or at least a cohesive maintenance team and a, and a clear leadership structure. Well, um, and you do, like yeah, need yeah. to have a, a community that cares enough to fork it where yeah. i guess like again like fast forwarding to some sort of dystopian future that don't actually know is a future or not um but if open source projects become more about users than about contributors and people are just sort of using the thing um mm -hmm. 
then it becomes a lot harder to like mobilize people to change something. But maybe I'm just sort of making up. Well, <laughs> making I mean, up I sort of think like it, the, the, the degree, the ease with which it is possible to motivate people to make a fork or to change something will always be directly proportional to the amount of need for that change. I mean, if no right. one's motivated to change anything, that just means it's not important to someone for something to get changed. So why should we care? I think. See, I don't know if that's, yeah, I don't know. I, I think people can like hate using something. There's a ton of, I mean, like legacy open source projects that are used in everybody's code. And it's just really hard to switch out because everyone uses well, them. I, I think the difference though, is that there's just not enough people. Um, yes, people hate using it, but there's not enough people that want to be developing on it. They can't that would then fork it and fix it. Right. I think that there's, there's a tension here between the people using it and the people that want to contribute and can't or want to fix this and can't. Right. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes it really is too difficult to, to pull that out. But I mean, IOJS was like a pretty successful fork and that was in large part because there were a lot of people that wanted to contribute that couldn't, um, and that wanted to, to, you know, take on ownership of the project and couldn't. Um, and so there was a thriving community actually working on it. And then people that were using it saw, oh, great, like I can go and use this. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, unfortunately, I don't know the details of, of that particular yeah, form. No, it no sounds problem. like you do. So, I mean, if you think there are interesting <laughs> lessons to draw from it, please, please explain more. Oh, well, so I, I've said this on, on a couple of occasions, but I think that there, the size of the user base is proportional. There's some percentage of that that would contribute, that want to contribute in some way. And if they're enabled to, then you'll have a thriving community. And if you don't, you eventually will increase the tension, not just with your overall like user base, but also with these people that would be contributing. And eventually, if that tension rises enough, um, you get a fork. I, I think that where, where yeah. that where that starts to pare down is that when you look at Android, the the users of the Android code base are not the users of Android. The users of the Android code base are companies that manufacture phones yes. for the most part. And indeed, um, they've started forking Android. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so they, they, they have the resources to do that, and their needs do not necessarily line up with, with the needs of Google. The problem is that their needs are, are in many cases, counter to the users of Android. <laughs> Um, and so it, it puts it puts Google in this strange place where they are they're not satisfying the the needs of the users of the Android code base, but they are satisfying the needs of the Android users, like end users, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if you talk to anybody who uses Android, they're they're like, oh, I have to use the newest Google phone that only takes the Google Android because the the ones where manufacturers have forked them are are pretty much terrible. Except I, I heard John is really good. I think that we're getting into very specific things with Android. <laughs> <don't know. laughs> yeah. Well, we are, but 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 just to make a quick point about that, I mean, in in theory, in some sort of like long arc of software justice, there should be uh, a link between what those companies are doing with their forks of Android and users' needs, because otherwise they're not going to sell phones. Um, well, and, and of course, and I would love all those phones to be running a fully open source operating system. And and the reasons why they're not are an interesting topic in their own right. But but there should be some connection eventually between between the, those forks and some kind of technical need being solved. Well, and so when you're looking towards the future, though, do you do you see that that tension rising and, and users need starting to come more in conflict with that model? Or, or are you more pessimistic about it and you feel like this the surface is going to continue to be dominated the way that it is now? Oh, I want to give the optimistic answer, but I, I have no justification for it. Um, <laughs> it just because software is increasingly being tied to hardware devices. And the hackability for a hardware device is so much like the, the what's the hacktivation energy, the threshold for hacking on 
something other than a normal laptop or desktop computer is just so much higher that the ratio in any given pool, any given user base, the number of those users who will be developers, their percentage is going to be lower because like just, just to hack on an Android phone, like, all right, you've got to set up an Android development environment. You've got to plug into the phone using a, you know, a special piece of software that gets you into a development environment. And all of that software might be open source, but it's not like just compiling or, or running a program and then hacking on the source code and running it again on your laptop. It's like the overhead to get to the point of development is just so much higher. And that's going to be, I mean, that's just phones. Like, wait till it's your, you think hacking on your car is going to be easier than that? No, it's going to be a lot harder. Well, I, I think, unfortunately, we have to leave it there with this uh, view of a dystopian future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always, but, <laughs> well, always happy to make it darker for you. Right. But, uh, but we'll be back next week uh, with, with, some, with some much happier. We're going to continue with Carl uh, and talk about some much happier things <laughs> like, you know, casual contributions and governance models. I don't want to turn that dark, like too. That. So, oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> Can't wait. Oh,